He's the president of Mises.org. Jeff Dice, how you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing well, too. It's great having you on again, and uh, always great to talk about the news uh, this wild time that we're in. It's it's fun to, to mix it up and, and to think outside of the left versus right paradigm as we try to to uh, you know push ourselves towards. I want to talk about this story here that uh, has been getting a lot of uh, attention right now, which is the plan here that's been uh, – they want to – um, they want to expand the Supreme Court. The Democrats have pushed in uh, a desire to ex- add to the Supreme Court, to add some uh, more, uh, I guess, four. How many do they want to make it to? Thirteen, right? Thirteen justices. Yes. Yes. Well, adding four justices, presumably over the next period where uh, Biden or Harris were president, so they'd be Democrats, uh, would take the current, what's viewed as a 6-3 conservative majority, although I would argue that oftentimes Gorsuch and Roberts and these people aren't really uh, reliable votes, uh, but it would it would create a 7-6 Democratic majority. So that's, I think, where the four number comes from. Uh, look, Joe Biden was asked about this during his campaign. It's been a Democratic proposal in both the House and Senate. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about adding the Supreme Court members, that the Supreme Court is needed to overcome things like the filibuster, is needed to overcome gridlock in Congress. And, and their real goal here, David, is to create a, another legislature. Really, that's what the Supreme Court has become over the past 50 years or so. It's become a de facto lawmaker, uh, uh, unelected judges creating law. I don't think we, there's any real disagreement about that. That's not a, a, an incendiary statement or anything. So, uh, this proposal's been around. FDR did it. Uh, there's no constitutional number, whether there's got to be 9 or 13 or 12 or whatever. And so it's certainly doable. Now, already Nancy Pelosi has talked about uh, backing off. She's not going to necessarily bring this to the House uh, Committee or Judiciary Committee or to the House floor for a vote. And I think in part that's because she knows it's still viewed by a lot of Americans as kind of an outlandish or, you know, as, as a bridge too far. But also, the Democratic majority in the House is very slim. It's only a handful of members. And so, you know, a radical bill like that could cause them to lose the House in 2022. Uh, you, but Jerry Nadler, nonetheless, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, is one of the main sponsors of the bill. And you've got Dick Durbin on the Senate side, who would be fielding it as the chairman of the Senate, excuse me, Senate Judiciary Committee. So I would view this as just another example of the left is serious. Now, sometimes they know that they have to float kind of an outrageous trial balloon so that the fallback halfway position seems reasonable. But this is how they make their advances, is incrementally. And so the things that, that seem radical today, uh, five years, ten years, whatever become the mainstream uh, uh, plank or perspective of the party. So this is, a, this, is a, uh, this is a trial balloon, I think, and a very serious one. And this kind of goes to a point that we've talked about a little bit before, which is that, you know, the, the left is always very pernicious in abandoning principles and rules. They throw it all on the field. They, you know, it's like if they're winning, if this is a wrestling match, they use any cheap shot, low blow. The referee doesn't look. They use a chair. They use whatever it takes to win. 
and the right has always kind of been more like gentlemen. You know, at least I'm not saying their policies are, are noble; they're often very disgusting and repulsive policies. But in terms of their uh, rhetorical strategy, their cultural framing of things, they tend to be about oh, we're you know we're going to just be kind of country club and very prim and proper. And the left just works them over, over and over again, right? And this kind of seems like another example of them just moving the needle again. We're going to change the rules. You, you put in uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the other guy Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. We're going to just all right, add four more. How you like those apples? And they just get away with yeah. it every time. Yeah, and people on the left would say that the right broke the rules when they installed Gorsuch at the end of um, Trump's term, and and Barrett. You know, so I, I get that, but the, the Dems have certainly uh, installed Supreme Court justices at the end of a lame duck president's term, so it's not unprecedented by any stretch. Uh, and, and both sides obviously are political and partisan and do all kinds of underhanded things in terms of the rules, but there really aren't any rules because this is war. This is just a step shy of war. Politics is war by other means, and so you use subterfuge, you use deception, you use whatever you have to do to prevail. It's a, it's a consequentialist game. It's not a, an ontological or rules-based game. And, and again, you know, Biden was asked about this, and he, he never said he would absolutely support it, but he, he also never said that he opposed it. And so the strange thing about it all is that the right or the Republicans, what, what we could loosely call just not the left, in other words, people who oppose the progressive juggernaut, regardless of their underlying sort of ideological stripes. And, you know, time, it's one thing to constantly sell out your principles and win. In other words, you sell out in order to get something, to get rich, to get jobs, to get patronage, to get political power, right? But it's a crazy thing to sell out constantly and lose. (laughs) And and it seems to me that that's what Republicans and conservatives do. And at this point, I don't think there is a, a real ideological coherence to conservatism. You know, it's it's really running around like a chicken with its head cut off because it knows it's losing to the progressives, but it doesn't fully seem to to know how or why they are or how to correct it. So why do you think that is? Why? How come they continue to play a loser's hand every time, culturally and then politically? It, um, obviously, again, there's some crafty political uh, maneuvering on both sides, but it seems like the left is always just kind of uh, – uh, just running the, the field with their uh, designated losers on conservative ink, you know? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And part of it's human nature. I think some people may, in fact, be wired uh, towards a, a, a view of, you know, a more egalitarian worldview that makes them lean politically left. Some people may be more wired towards a, you know, real uh, achievement and justice-oriented worldview, which makes them more oriented to the right. Uh so who knows, but here's what the left has done, is they have used the non-political means available to them, academia, culture, arts, entertainment, Hollywood, uh, literature, uh, the churches, the synagogues, to you know, make their case more broadly in a cultural way. And so... 
I think that's really where we are. We're, we're, you know, 50, maybe even more than 50 years on now from when baby boomers were in their 20s, teens and 20s, and rejecting every sort of institution uh, in society that had been bequeathed to them by their World War II greatest generation parents. And so now they have produced Gen X, excuse me, that they produced the millennials below them. And we're in a situation now where, uh, you know, after 50 years of firing heavy artillery at all the institutions in the country, well, they, you know, those institutions are damaged. And so th- this, this makes us feel like society is sort of unraveling and, uh, and it, we clamor for any sense of normalcy or some sense of security. And what, what the progressives have done very skillfully is say, hey, the one thing we've got here to coalesce around, the one organizing principle we have is the state. Right. You know, the, the animating impulse is, is egalitarianism, but the means, the mechanism is the state. And that's the one thing we've all got to rally around and focus on. And, you know, regardless of all the different flavors of folks on the left, they're all for that Leviathan, uh, what I would consider an authoritarian or totalitarian state. And so they're for something. They're, that's definable. Um, people who are not progressives tend to be against things because progressives have been steamrolling for so long that, you know, opposition to that is reactionary. It's, it's, it's on its heels all the time. It's on the defensive. And that's where we are. So how do we uh, create a new vision for society that's forward-looking and uh, in, in the driver's seat rather than just reacting all the time? Because I don't have an interest in being in a reaction state of mind. That's not what I want to do. I want to have, uh, you know, I, I'm still kind of, a, I guess, you know, I still dream about doing great things in our world together, that we could cure diseases and that we can create energy too cheap to meter. We can you know, travel to new galaxies. I mean, to have that kind of change, though, you have to have a culture that's going somewhere and and, and has a, f- a positive vision for the future. So how do we how do we kind of flesh that out a little bit so that we're not just reacting? If we're reacting, we'll never have time to have flying, uh, you know, mm-hmm. flying across galaxies. We'll just be reacting to the latest uh, scandal of, of Dr. Seuss or whatever, you know? Well, there's no question that all this uh, political focus takes us away from what ought to be our real lives, which is creating and having families and uh, worrying about, you know, soccer and mortgages and things like that, rather than, you know, worrying about uh, whether some gang in Washington is going to, you know, grievously harm us. And I think a lot of people in this country really feel like if the other side wins, they're almost living in an occupied country. I know that Hillary Clinton voters certainly felt that way during the Trump administration. They made that clear. Uh, and so they, that's why they call themselves the resistance, right? Who, who resists? Well, you resist occupation. And this is a very unhealthy way to live, and it's clear that the answer, it's, it's, it's as plain as day. It's staring us in the face. It's right, it's, it's right there at the end of our noses, which is we need to break up politically. I think the left resists this mightily because they don't, they, they feel like they're going to win and route everything. So why should they um, give up a, 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 any portion of the country just to to win a little quicker? Since they're going to win every anyway. There's that sort of inevitability sense on the left, and and they want you know, the that's, spoils, that's, huh? that's, right? That's probably fair enough. But I'll tell you what. Um, 
I think it's the, it's what we ought to be working on because the last four or five years have taught us anything. It's that you know our old fashioned ideas of persuasion, which were based on some sort of shared underlying value system or reality, uh, isn't working. Right. Yeah, it's true, and it's it's one of those things where you know. Um, uh, when people feel like they're about to get it all, they're they're certainly not going to let it go off the field, right? Like, wait a second, why would I let you guys go off in your corner? It's just the same thing with like they've done with Florida. They have harassed Florida relentlessly because it's a populated state with a lot of money and a lot of influence that has taken a much lighter touch to this COVID stuff. And they just can't leave it alone. Right? They can't. They can't leave it alone. Okay, we've got California in night night lockdown. We got New York City night night. Everybody go to bed at six o'clock. You know, they they got all these people that they love to tyrannically bully and pick on, and and they they got plenty of people. Why can't they leave Florida alone? Because they can't let it go. And so I wonder, Jeff, if if states like Florida start having more and more assertion of their powers, like the founders intended. Will they be able to handle that? Or are they going to create another kind of a scandal where they're going to try to say, oh, my goodness, they're trying to – it's an insurrection. You know, they'll use that word. They used it for GameStop stock, mm-hmm. right? So they'll use mm-hmm. it if any if Florida tries to nullify anything too aggressively. They'll just say, oh, my goodness, it's an insurrection. It's, they're trying to destroy us all, you know? Well, COVID gave us an opportunity to apply a little bit of federalism, a little bit of that laboratory of states – and so I suspect governors uh, like Ron DeSantis in Florida will be demonized one way or another. Look for him to have a scandal, by the way, uh, because they're worried about him as a potential national figure, a replacement for, for maybe Trump. Uh, I, I wish he would just focus on Florida and, and say, no way, I'm not running for president. All I care about is Florida. I want to make Florida great, and I want to really focus my efforts here uh, so that we can build something, because I'd like to see a lot of people really turning their backs on Washington and focusing on their state and local situations. But, um, you know, it's you, you can't fool people forever. The media is pretty powerful in this country, but, you know, Florida's, Florida had better outcomes, uh, certainly financially with COVID. So it's, uh, it's very interesting times. And again, I, I think that that idea of persuading people on a really big macro level is, um, isn't going to work and that it's too late for that. Right. We're speaking with Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute. You can follow them at Jeff Dice on Twitter or go to their website, Mises.org, to learn more about uh, the free market approach of the Austrian school. And when we can return, we're going to take a quick break. When we do, we're going to pick up. And I want to get into some of the uh, quotes that uh, Jeff recently posted from uh, Ludwig von Mises himself, the namesake of the um, uh, of the institute, where he's talking about this uh, managerial elites versus blue collar blue collar workers, and uh, how that kind of shapes so much of where we're at today. We'll take a break and return live on a neighbor's choice. Jeff Dice, as we look at different news, looking for answers outside of the failed political paradigm of left versus right. Uh, you posted a tweet I wanted to share. It says, Libertarians have a bad tendency to display hatred and contempt for working class and blue-collar Americans, but this sentiment doesn't flow from Mises, who understood and appreciate, appreciated the shopkeeper and the mechanic. And you kind of posted some quotes from a 
uh, the anti-capitalist mentality, anti-capitalistic mentality that he put out in 1954. Yeah, this is a pretty remarkable book that Mises wrote in the 50s. And you got to understand a little bit about his background. I mean, he came from a shopkeeper family in, in a sense, and uh, but also in his both in his time in Vienna and then his time later in Switzerland, in the United States, he never had a lot of money himself, um, and so he was not someone who viewed the world through the lens of a rich guy at all. Uh, and despite being obviously a very pro free market economist and writer and philosopher, so th- this book, the anti capitalist mentality, is really uh, sort of a, a take you know a skewering of elitist left-wing tastes, and, and among those are what we might call highbrow tastes in art and literature and entertainment and that sort of thing. And so part of this, this very short book goes into this idea of, you know, one of the big objections or criticisms of capitalism is that it creates sort of lowbrow art, it creates ticky-tacky fast food uh, architecture, you know, it creates all these things which are not necessarily aesthetically on par with what we think of as uh, as you know Vienna at the turn of the century or something like that and there's there's certainly some truth to that but but Mises points out he says you know first of all this bureaucratic class i mean they tend to overestimate themselves and their importance vis-a-vis the working man who works with his hands and you know operates machinery or equipment that really makes our physical lives possible you know people who bring us energy and food and buildings and all that that's all blue collar labor and so without that there's no uh, offices for these uh, you know bureaucratic or uh, what we today call the digerati i guess uh, people who stare at a screen all day uh, you know they they need the blue collar guy in a way the blue collar guy doesn't necessarily need them so that's for starters but also this idea that well you know capitalism produces low art it produces stephen king novels instead of uh, you know, Dostoevsky novels, it, it produces, um, uh, you know, pop art and pop music instead of uh, Rembrandt and Mozart, that sort of thing. And, and he says, well, you know, even if that's true, sometimes he says, A, David, over time, the good stuff tends to endure and shine through over generations and decades and centuries, like Shakespeare, tends to endure. So we don't need to worry too much about the the uh, deviations of the day. And second, he says, you know, as long as he's peaceable about it, who is really to tell a working man or a woman how to spend their leisure time, right? I mean, who's who's to say that they should be reading Shakespeare instead of Stephen King? That's not really, uh, you know, a decision that ought to be anyone other than that that individual. So I thought I just find this book really refreshing. And he's again, he's writing in the fifties, so he takes some shots at Hollywood in this book. Uh, he he takes some shots at the idea of uh, professors who, you know, simmer with with uh, hostility and envy because businessmen make more money than them and they consider themselves more important or more intelligent than businessmen. You know, all these kinds of things um, that we think of maybe as stereotypical about uh, the, the intellectual. Uh, folks in society, he takes some, I I think, pretty important pot shots at. And I personally, I don't like to see, uh, you know, I think a lot of the hostility directed at Trump, for example, was really just, uh, was really directed at his supporters and voters. 
And, uh, you know, blue-collar people are in disfavor with this sort of technocratic people in D.C., especially white blue-collar voters. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, unfortunate. I think it's, it's a, a function of hubris. I think it's a function of misplaced priorities. And I think it's undeserved. Uh, we, you know, we, the idea be, behind so much of Mises' work was social cooperation. We have a division of labor. That's what makes us rich. And that's what gives us material abundance, which makes, makes it a lot easier for us to get along because we're not starving. We're not at each other's throats. And so that requires all kinds of people. Yes, it certainly requires intellectuals, maybe not as many as we've got through this artifice of uh, state education. But, you know, it takes all kinds of people. And and there's a, a nobility in that, I think, and there's a there's a, a nobility in work of all kinds. And so I'm I think uh, this this antipathy towards populism that we've seen from both left and right and libertarian uh, intellectuals over the past few years, over the Trump era, we might say, you know, it, it they don't realize that 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 populism is rooted in a reaction to their own um, hubris. I think that's the source of all this, David. Yeah, and uh, at the same point, you know, when I, I hear people say, uh, on some on the right saying, you know, the liberty approach to dealing with uh, getting rid of this, getting the state out of our lives, out of, out of education, that that's totally a distraction. That's not an issue that has any really relevance, but... I think about like what you what you just said there a moment ago about the uh, these these different academics and look at this critical theory for example right I mean this this was nurtured in state funded universities right this is state grants and federal grants and all kinds of taxes and and the, and the uh, the artificial loan creations for the for the students to go to these schools. This was a creature of the state intervening in education for so long that stupid ideas like Michel Foucault's work could become so powerful to the point where every corporation is bending their knee in support and deference to the failed ideas of mm -hmm. Foucault, right? Yeah, we paid for it all. That's what's so crazy right. about it. it. It all came out of universities, which have been you know, home to all kinds of crazy ideas because, you know, universities aren't subject almost entirely to the, the whims or the vagaries or the discipline of the marketplace. That's what tenure is all about. You know, you have a spot at that university come hell or high water. And there's some benefits to that. Uh, we do want to have an intellectual class in society that can just consider things and ponder things and, and can be open in their research and writing and even their thoughts. They can be open and, and go where the facts uh, take them uh, and not have to self-censor because they fear losing their jobs. So there's, there's an argument for tenure and for uh, intellectuals in, in any society, of course. And for most of human history, they were sponsored, right? They were very wealthy patrons. M Michelangelo is a great example of that. The Medici uh, sponsored him in, in his work because it wasn't always that easy to make a living being Michelangelo just on the market. So there's a history of this, but, um, you know, it's gone way, way, way too far. And so now we have so many uh, academics with so much time on their hands. They're producing just absolute nonsense like critical race theory, which is not only nonsensical, 
in, in its approach is basically critical theory, which has been around for a while, which is a, you know, a, a sort of a power analysis of institutions, but now introducing the racial component. Everything has to be viewed through the lens of race. The entirety of American history now has to be viewed through the lens of race. And in fact, um, all of American history is uh, r- racialist. So this is, this is a crazy idea. And like I said, we bought and paid for it ourselves. Right, and it's a failure of relying on the state to babysit our children and our college students, and it's going to create, it's like if you ask Satan to raise your kids, if they turn out to be Satanists, don't complain, right? So, Jeff, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks again for coming on, and I want people to follow you at at Jeff Deist on Twitter and Mises.org. Thanks again. Thank you.